Hello and welcome to episode 181 of Real Life Ghost Stories. And to kick things off this week, I need to thank some of our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Marie Desmarteau, Kanea Lang, Holly Tilton, Linda at Winderlust Malaga, Rebecca Ireson, Alison Scott, Joanne Broderick McGuinness, Chris Parry, Gavin Hartsfield, Grace Galvez, Gunderson Logistics, Adrian Bland, Nick Gordon, Taylor, Lauren Bonecutter, Jenny Umana Reyes, Matt Osborne, Samantha Camo, Dave Morris, and Cheryl Bazaki. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and appreciate you every single day. And speaking of Patreon, I need to give a massive shout out to the lovely Janique on Patreon who suggested this week's film review, not a film I'd heard of. And it is because of her that I decided to watch it and review it. And our film review this week is Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. Don't Be Afraid of the Dark was released in 2011. It has 5.5 out of 10 on IMDb and 60% on Rotten Tomatoes. A young girl sent to live with her father and his new girlfriend believes that she has released creatures from a sealed ash pit in the basement of her new home. So as always, we're going to do likes and dislikes and let's get started with the likes column. So look, this film is so Del Toro. It is directed by Del Toro and it sounds like a really stupid thing to say, but I always think that Guillermo Del Toro films have such like an intense fairy tale vibe with this hint of wild violence. It's like really grim fairy tales. And if you're into it, if you're into that style, then you're kind of going to like his films, you know, fundamentally. And this has such del Toro vibes from the very, very beginning. So from the offset, you're hit with this like intensely violent scene. Now, it's an interesting one because you don't really see the violence. The violence is sort of more implied, but it's very, it's very intense. It made me like, ooh, it made me wince. But there's also that del Toro nuance to it where, yes, it's violent, but you kind of get a weird warmth towards the perpetrator of the violence because you're watching going, what would I do in this same situation? You can kind of see why he does what he does and you feel kind of sad for him. So I think that nuance of victim and perpetrator in Del Toro films is often is often very prevalent. Uh, when we move forward into the future, then you meet the protagonist who is a child. And you know how I feel about child actors in horror films. OK, I've got a real problem with it. It has has really impacted my life many times. There's a lot of time that I'm never going to get back from watching shit child actors in horror films. But she was really great. She had attitude. She was like struggling with her relationship with both of her parents for separate reasons. Her relationship with her dad wasn't very good and she'd been sent to live with him and his new girlfriend. So the actor's name, I think, is Bailey Madison. And she's just a really good child actor. She was... A delight to watch. She was believable. She was, she had all this attitude and I liked her. I really enjoyed watching her. And listen, Janique on Patreon, this was a great recommendation because I love a fairy story and I was delighted from the beginning when I realised that this story was like a twisted take on fairy lore and the tooth fairy legend And I love a story that's about little nasty fairy folk that are causing havoc 
I'm always going to enjoy it, you know? I want to see them little creatures fucking shit up. I grew up learning about fairies putting thorns in your bed if you picked a mushroom. So, you know, these guys, these guys are running around with scissors. They're running around with weapons. They're these little like, gremlin creatures. You see them quite early on, so I'm not spoiling anything. And it just is what it is. I think that's why I kind of like Del Toro movies too, in that... You're just you're just accepting that you're living in this fairy tale world. I was reading some reviews of this film and they were like, it's so not believable. And I was like, well, you're watching a film that's about little gremlin-y fairies that are running around causing havoc. What do you want for it to be believable, you know? And I think that's 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 why I like these films because you're just going, well, I'm not looking for the human explanation. This is what it is. It's a story about fairies and I'm just going to sit here and enjoy it. And on to my dislikes column. And now before I get into the dislikes, I know that this is a remake of a 1970s film. I haven't seen that film, but I know that it scared the life out of lots of people back in the day. So I don't know how this film compares to the original. The original one is definitely on my list because from reading about it through this film, it seems like it was a really kind of seminal film for a lot of people. But back to my dislikes column, um, I feel like, and this is a really technical thing that annoys me in general about films, there were so many scenes in this movie which were just way too visually dark and it was just annoying to watch as a result because I was like squinting at the, the screen trying to figure out what was happening and it it was important to the storyline. It's not just like they were dark for no reason, like the scenes needed to be dark for the storyline but I feel like there had to have been a better way to portray that than just me watching a black screen every so often because it just, it is annoying, right? And while Bailey Madison was great in her role as the child, Katie Holmes plays the dad's new girlfriend and Guy Pierce, I think was the guy who played her dad. They were, they were really poor in their roles. They didn't, they were not good. They, I was surprised and I don't really remember a lot of stuff that Katie Holmes was in but I was surprised at how good she wasn't, you know? And there were times in the film when I was like, God, can we just get some changeling action going on here and swap Katie Holmes out for a better character because she is adding nothing to this story. And I have to be honest, right? Let me tell you. These little fairy gremlins were going around fucking shit up, right? If that's happening, I want to see more of a battle between the humans and the little creatures. Like if I saw a tiny weebly little gremlin with a knife coming towards me, you know I am booting that thing into oblivion. Alright? That thing is being picked up and swung around like a hammer toss. I'm not I'm not having it. I felt like some really good battle scenes between the humans and the fairies in this movie would have really genuinely elevated it and made it a bit more fun. And I am not remotely condoning violence against the Fae, just in case anybody is listening. But you best believe if a chihuahua-sized monster is coming towards me with a cutthroat razor in its hand, I'm drawing back a boot and that thing is being punted straight into the fireplace. I'm just putting it out there. So overall, right, overall I liked it. I felt at points that it dragged a bit, but I thought it was a good grim fairy story like I said there was that moment of violence at the beginning but outside of that I actually think it would be a good fun horror movie to watch with teenagers in your life so if you were looking for a good kind of maybe 12 and up age appropriate film to watch 
maybe watch the first five minutes and, and decide whether or not your kid can handle that first five minutes. I promise you it's not, there's no real blood. You don't see any of the real violence. There's a scene later with a groundskeeper that's a bit hectic, but it's nothing that they wouldn't, that they'd be losing sleep over. So I think it might be a good, fun watch. And I, I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it a solid three stars. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it for what it was and I love a good fairy story. So that's three stars for Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. Before we get into our story, I just want to say a massive Happy New Year to everyone who is listening. I know this episode comes out on January the 1st and I know that New Year can be a difficult time for lots of people. I just wanted to wish everyone a Happy New Year and maybe let 2023 be the year that you're gentle with yourself and gentle to other people. I have a huge amount of love for you all. And you've all been very supportive in the last 18 months in particular. And uh, yeah, just before I get too sentimental, let's uh, get into the story. And I have another, I have another caveat before we even get into the story. So this story is actually based on a Patreon story that I did only last week. So Patreon listeners, please don't panic. You're still going to get your money's worth and you are still going to have a story to enjoy. So I read like a shortened version of this story on Patreon because I was looking for poltergeist stories. Now, usually I don't do more than one poltergeist story in a row, but this one was so unusual and I just loved it. And I said on Patreon that after I read the story that I was considering exploring it in a main episode and here we are. So I managed to track down the original book that this story came from and it's a short story but it's kind of unlike any story of its kind that we've covered before and I don't really know if I'm sure that poltergeist is the correct term for it. So if you're a Patreon subscriber there'll be bits of this story that you'll be like oh I've heard this before but I just I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I wanted to kind of try and dive into the full version of this story. So the book that this story was in was called The World's Strangest True Mysteries, selected by editors of Fate. And then the the chapter was called The Artistic Poltergeist by Roger L. Rhodes. And this is kind of the only real source I can find for this story. So I had to do a bit of padding out with some of the narrative, but all of the basic facts of the story remain the same. So let's get into it. Mesmerism is not a term that we use particularly regularly in today's modern parlance. But in the 18th century, it was all the rage and was at the forefront of contemporary psychology. The technique was popularised in the 1700s by Franz Anton Mesmer and was used as a way to cure people of various ailments. Mesmer believed that animal magnetism was the key to this cure and the procedure involved the application of magnets to the part of the patient's body that was affected by the particular ailment and then the patient would be put into a trance-like state by gazing into their eyes and making what he called magnetic passes over them with his hands. It was so popular that the words mesmerised and variations of it have stuck around, and eventually mesmerism was superseded by what we now know as hypnotism. The reason we have to start here is that I need to explain to you what kind of man Reverend Eliakim Phelps was. It was 1850, and Reverend Phelps was a very well-respected man, but he was also a great believer in all things paranormal, which, in 1850, would not have been wholly unusual. 
He was a practitioner of mesmerism and would cure people of various ailments using the method. So it's safe to say that the forces of good and evil and non-scientific reasons for various phenomena were a pretty substantial part of his life. Later in life, Reverend Phelps had married for a second time and the woman he married was a widow with four children. The children were a girl aged 16, a boy aged 11, a girl aged 6 and another boy aged 3. And our story begins on the 10th of March 1850. It was a Sunday in Stratford, Connecticut and the weather was beginning to turn. You could feel a tiny hint of warmth in the crisp spring air and a breeze blustered as the Phelps family made their way home after church. People of the town called their greetings and blessings to the Reverend and his family as they made their way home. The second that the Reverend opened the door to their home, he realised that something was very wrong. Their house had been ransacked and his heart sank as he realised that someone must have broken into the house while the family was at church. He urged his family to wait at the door and as they craned their necks to see the carnage inside, he took a slow, cautious step into the house, feeling a mixture of panic and confusion but trying to remain calm and clear-headed. He worried that the perpetrator would be inside. Was it someone who was looking for something? Maybe someone passing through the town and saw an opportunity or someone who bore a grudge against him or his family? But surely that was impossible. As he made his way from room to room, the different possible scenarios vied for attention in his head. Each room had been ransacked, with furniture flung around and the contents of drawers and cupboards strewn all over the floors. He moved through the house, room by room, and he placed the palm of his hand on a door and slowly pushed it open to survey the damage. But what he saw in that room made him catch his breath. He held the door open, not daring to take a step inside while his brain tried to comprehend what he was seeing. In the room, a scene had been painstakingly created and for a brief moment, he thought that the room was full of women. Real women. But they weren't real. These women were dolls. Well, almost like dolls. They were women that had been painstakingly fashioned out of clothes and items of fabric that were clearly belonging to the Phelps family home. The women were littered around the room in poses of extreme devotion, on their knees praying, some with their arms out and their foreheads touching the floor. Some of the figures were kneeling with Bibles open in front of them. Phelps stepped into the room and looked at the Bible verses, immediately desperate for some clue as to what was happening here. The Bibles were all opened on pages with verses that seemed to reference paranormal phenomenon. As the Reverend surveyed the scene, he counted that there were ten female figures and one male. And then something else. Something in the middle of the circle of worship that was not like the others. It was a small, goblin-like creature, smaller than the others and truly grotesque. And suspended above it was an even smaller figure. 
like a poppet. Phelps stepped backwards out of the room and shut the door. It's hard to imagine how any of us would respond in that situation. The family had been at church, all together, and someone had somehow entered their home and ransacked it, but had also created this elaborate and strange tableau. Whatever had happened, he needed to figure it out for the safety of his family, and what he did next is the reason that we even know this story today. He got other learned people involved in an attempt to solve the mystery. His first port of call was a man named Dr. Webster, another well-respected man in the community, who knew both the Reverend and his family. Dr. Webster ended up being so struck by the events of the next 18 months that he wrote extensively about it in the New Haven Journal and Courier. A watch was set up to try and establish who was responsible for these events, but the figures continued to appear. Rooms that were closed and monitored would suddenly have these figures appear inside them. Webster noted that the figures were made from materials that were gathered from all over the house and that so many figures were constructed in such a small space of time that it would have taken several people working steadily for several hours to pull it off. The figures varied from being beautiful and grotesque and were always arranged in some sort of scene. It is estimated that during this period of time, approximately 30 individual intricate figures were created. One of the Phelps sons was led into one of the rooms to survey the scene and ran straight to what he believed was his mother kneeling in prayer in the room. As he grabbed her joined hands, he reeled back in shock as the material crumpled in his little hands and he realised that it wasn't his mother at all but yet another figurine that, despite being made from fabric, was lifelike enough to fool him. They were made with great skill and care and didn't seem to be thrown together in a haphazard fashion. The fact that this child could mistake one of these figures for his own mother demonstrates how accurate and lifelike they actually were. And the figures weren't the only disturbance in the house. Webster wrote in his report of the events that, quote, for about 18 months, violent movements and disturbances were renewed with extreme frequency and force. Objects of all kinds were thrown around the house by what seemed to be invisible hands. Window panes were broken and great damage was done to the walls and furnishings of the home. Rappings were constantly heard and these sometimes gave intelligent and sometimes blasphemous answers to questions that were asked. It seemed from Webster's report that the Phelps family were at war with something disturbing, invisible and otherworldly, and something that desperately wanted to communicate with them and would go to any lengths to do so. But life had to continue as normal for the Phelps family too, in all of the worry about the strange events in the home, life goes on. Reverend Phelps needed to continue his work and his writings. The children needed to be fed and educated and the household needed to be ran efficiently. Reverend Phelps sat alone in his office writing, hunched over his desk. The only sound was the furious scratching of his pen as he worked diligently, his hand racing across the pages. The house was calm and quiet which seemed like a luxury these days, 
and for once he allowed his mind to focus on his work rather than the horror of the invisible aggressor that had moved in with them. He briefly stopped writing, paused for a second in his chair before standing up and moving to his impressive array of books that sat on his shelves. He ran his finger along them before settling on a book and taking it down. As he opened it, he became aware of another sound in the room other than the rustle of turning pages. It was the scratching of his pen on the paper. He turned around and there was no one in his seat and the pen was lying lifeless where he had left it. But when he approached his desk, cautiously he realised that his page was now covered in writing that wasn't there a mere minute before. The Reverend ran his fingers softly over the newly formed words and the ink stained his fingers. It was not yet dry. This was finished mere seconds before and the words... The words were a strange jumble of words and phrases and symbols that he didn't understand. It was the words and symbols that were a repeated pattern, but none of the family or observers could have expected what happened next. As the invisible aggressor attempted to communicate yet again. It was again a calm and quiet evening and the family were allowing themselves to be a normal family. It was one of the children that spotted it first as he dropped to his knees to examine something that seemed to be growing from the carpet. Mother? There are plants in the carpet. And there are pictures on the leaves. Mrs Phelps looked at her husband and he looked back at her. What did that possibly mean? As they looked at the carpet, they realised that green shoots had sprung up everywhere, all over the carpet. They dropped to the floor to examine the plants further, and on the leaves were strange symbols. Some form of hieroglyphic-style pictures that were indecipherable. None of the family spoke as they looked at the plants, all completely enraptured by what they were seeing. They didn't recognise the plants. They didn't understand what the symbols were on the leaves or how they got there. The silence was only broken when the smash of shattering glass heralded that yet something else had been hurled through a window. What is remarkable about this case is that the witness testimonies came thick and fast. One witness named Mr H.B. Taylor reported that he saw the following. Quote, In my presence, the elder boy was carried across the room by invisible hands and deposited gently on the floor. A supper table was raised and tipped over when the room was completely empty to people. In one instance, the boy's clothes were cut to ribbons. In the presence of several persons, articles moved through the air and a brass candlestick fell from the mantelpiece and continued to dash itself against the floor until broken. A shovel and tong set moved out of the fireplace and then proceeded to hop about and dance in the middle of the floor. A heavy dining room table was raised into the air and a lamp moved across the room and set fire to some papers. On a later occasion, the boy was found hung to a tree and the elder girl, while sleeping, had a pillow pressed over her head and tape tied around her neck which nearly strangled her. Another report came from Professor Austin Phelps, who was the son of Reverend Phelps from his previous marriage. He reported that, quote, on one occasion, when Reverend Phelps was alone, walking across the room, 
a key and a nail flew over his head and fell at his feet. That same evening, in the presence of the whole family, a turnip fell from the ceiling. Spoons and forks flew from the table into the air and one day, six or eight spoons were taken up at once, bent double by the invisible agency and thrown at those in the room. On another occasion when Reverend Phelps was alone, he was directed by the raps to put his hand under the table and his hand was grasped by what seemed to be a human hand, warm and soft. Most of the raps purported to come from a Frenchman named D, who had been a clerk for a firm of lawyers who had handled a settlement for Mrs. Phelps. D asserted that he was in hell because he had cheated in the drawing of the settlement papers. Reverend Phelps investigated and did find that there had been fraud perpetrated, though not involving a sum sufficiently large enough to warrant a prosecution. A Reverend Charles Beecher made similar statements about the legitimacy of the case in a report published in 1879, and a man named Andrew Jackson Davis visited the family in Stratford and believed that the phenomena was the result of psychic manifestations from the eldest boy and girl in the household, although he absolutely insisted the events were paranormal. The New York Sun published an article on April 29, 1850, in which the journalist, Mr. Beach, reported that he was witness to the paranormal phenomena in the house. He visited the house in the early days of the events, and the elder boy was sitting up in bed with a number of adults in the room investigating the phenomena. They watched as a matchbox fell from the mantelpiece with a bizarrely loud thunk. All eyes were on it as it slid across the floor and under the boy's bed. The boy began to scream and cry that he was being burned. And upon investigation, some paper under the bed had been set on fire and was burning away beneath it. Mr. Beach also reported witnessing spontaneous injuries appear on the elder girl. For example, she would complain of feeling as though she was being pinched. And when she rolled up her sleeves, there were vivid red marks on her arms. The New Haven Journal also reported that they witnessed the girl being spontaneously injured, with her screaming in her bedroom, claiming that she had been slapped in the face and a large red welt appeared on her face. When the reporter watched the family try and comfort her, a porcelain jug rose from a table, floated in the air for a few seconds before being smashed on the ground with huge force. But eventually, the activity in the house began to subside. And in October 1851, around 18 months after the activity started, it stopped altogether. The response was mixed. When the stories were reported in newspapers and journals, people were quick to suggest that the children were very clearly the perpetrators of a clever hoax. But Reverend Phelps insisted that it just wasn't possible. And another witness, Reverend John Mitchell, reported that he accompanied the family to and from their home and he witnessed the house being intact upon leaving and then being ransacked when they returned. And he insisted that it was not possible that any of the family were responsible. They were all out of the house at the time. And he also claimed to have witnessed writing appearing on the walls and the clothing of the family when none of the family were in the house. 
And I don't want to be a killjoy, people, but that is the end of the story. I, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know if any what happened next. I don't know what happened next. I don't know if it ever happened again. I don't know if they just... The dolls just stopped appearing or whatever. So first of all, I keep saying dolls and I can't really imagine them. I don't really have a frame of reference for them. So they, from, from what I can gather, they were sort of like almost life-sized replicas of people made out of clothes and bits of fabric from around the house. Like the implication seems to be that they were genuinely life-sized, but that they were also really intricate and artistic I think it's really interesting that I think it was Webster that said there's just no possible way that it was that people could make these figures that quickly you know like that an individual could do it and it kind of that bit of the story reminds me of the story of the Belmez faces where like yeah I do think there was lots of it that was hoaxed but then you kind of think a lot of the faces were intricate. Some of them were pretty much just smiley faces. Do you know what I mean? But a lot of them were, were intricate. And would you really be able to do that in that short space of time? And when I spoke about this on Patreon, I spoke about whether or not it's possible that the elder children had done this. And I still think that's a distinct possibility. And I'll explain why I think that later. Is it possible that they had learned how to make these figurines or dolls or poppets or whatever they were in a really quick way that maybe both of them or one of them had a knack for doing it because people like some people are just naturally talented they're naturally artistic they're naturally able to do things and then with a bit of practice there they can get better at doing these things much more easily so is that is that what it was is that is that what happened that it that these people were hoaxed and 30 of these figurines it's estimated were built over this 18 month period and appeared in rooms and you know appeared behind locked doors or doors that were watched constantly and I'd love to know on the topic of these dolls what bible verses the bibles were actually open to and I know that probably doesn't seem like a very important detail but these people, like these, this family were obviously very well versed in the bible and people would have been in particular communities in the 1850s of course they would have been because church was a very important part of community and socialization and people's lives so it would make sense that people would know the bible and know the bible really well and all i know of that that bit where the bible the bibles were all open to particular verses that apparently justified this paranormal behavior I don't know what that means though. Does that mean it was open to verses that spoke about paranormal behaviour or that spoke about, I don't know, demons or like how was that interpreted? I would love to know what those Bible verses are. I can't even, I can't even hazard a guess as to what the Bible verses might be but I do think that's important. I think that's a very important detail that would be really useful. I sort of wrote notes for this as I was going through the story. So I'll probably be jumping back and forth between ideas, which I know, I know is not like me. I never do that. So you'll be very surprised to hear that I might be doing that in this episode. I wondered as well, how long after the Reverend and his new wife got married did this start happening? So from what I read, the, the wife who never gets named in this story, she lost her husband and then three years later she married the Reverend. Now, I don't know what happened to the Reverend's first wife, but he obviously had children from his first marriage because we get that testimony from his son. 
And I'm curious as to how long after they got married this started happening. Because if this is the children, if it is a hoax, if it is the children, then it's very possible that this is a reaction to the mother getting remarried to this man. Maybe they just didn't want her getting remarried or even subconsciously didn't want her getting remarried or maybe they didn't like the reverend for whatever reason and they were acting out because of that. So if we were going to look at this story from a purely psychological and human perspective, I think it's actually a very important point that the older children, particularly I think the 16-year-old daughter, have experienced losing their father and then their mother remarrying and presumably, you know, moving the family into the the home with this man. And we don't know what their relationship was like with this man. And we know that this man was predisposed to be interested in the paranormal. So if it was a very well orchestrated hoax, it's very possible that it's the children who are responsible. But I am very interested in this story in the oddities of it like we've never really had a poltergeist story where figurines or figures like that were created regardless of whether they're life size or smaller than life size it sounds like they were pretty intricate we've never had that before but there is something in this story that we have heard about before so in the story the reverend talks about how uh, he was writing and he turned away for a second and he turned back around and there was all these symbols and words that were written on the page that he was writing on. And then we had that really weird moment where apparently plants were growing out of the carpet and they, it's referred to in the story as unidentified vegetables were growing out of the carpet and on the leaves were all these symbols and hieroglyphics. They refer to them as hieroglyphics were written on, not even written, I think they the implications seem to be that they were just on the leaves. But we've had that before. That is something that we've spoken about on a listener story before. I don't know if you guys remember, but there was a story about a person um, who had written in, I think there was a storm and on the rose petals, there were symbols and writing and numbers and letters on the rose petals after the storm. I don't know if you guys remember that story, but I remember being completely flabbergasted by it. And then after I read that story, other people contacted to say that they had seen or heard of a similar thing or the same thing with symbols and letters and whatever appearing on the leaves of plants. What the heck? Like, that's so crazy. I don't even know if you were hoaxing somebody or pranking somebody, how you'd even get to that point where you think, I know what we're going to do next is we're going to make plants grow out of the carpet. I mean, those things can happen, right? You drag in seeds on your shoes or the carpet is laid directly onto the ground, as does happen in some houses. Um, whatever it is, like those things can happen. I'm not disputing the, the possibility of, of plants growing through carpet. But would you really get to the point where you'd be like, and you know what we'll do to really freak people out, is write on the leaves. I don't know if you would get to that point. And I, do, I find it so odd that that's in this story. But we've heard about this in listener episode stories before. And I remember entertaining the notion with the rose petal story, the listener story, that was a potentially like alien, was a potentially UFO related. And if it was, again, what does it mean and how does it happen and why does it happen? So I that bit of it has blown my mind. I think that's why I became a little bit obsessed with this story because I was like, Oh, we've been here before. We've we've seen this before. And there's, you know, I do understand that the Reverend Phelps 
was predisposed to believe that this was paranormal. So he, like I said in the beginning, he practiced um, mesmerism, which is a form of hypnotism, and he believed in animal magnetism and all that stuff. And that's, you know, it's important to recognize that he probably would be more likely to jump to a paranormal conclusion than to sit down and maybe really think about, well, what's what's logically going on here? What's happening here in terms of scientifically? Or is it the kids that are doing this? Or And maybe he didn't want to believe those things, right? And I, I think it's interesting as well that in this story, we have witness testimony, but the witness testimony seems to be actually what the Reverend Phelps told these witnesses. So for example, in the case of Professor Austin Phelps, who was the Reverend Phelps' son, he writes a witness testimony where he mentions frequently things that happened to the Reverend Phelps when he was on his own. So therefore, the Reverend Phelps was the only witness and he would have relayed this happening to his son rather than his son actually witnessing it. So therefore, he isn't actually a witness. You know, he's somebody who is retelling something he has been told by somebody else and while we all like to believe people in these situations and believe our family members it doesn't make it a good strong witness testimony if the person who's witnessing it hasn't actually witnessed anything at all and honestly how many poltergeist cases have we seen on this podcast where a teenager is sitting up in bed and loads of adults are standing around waiting for paranormal shit to happen Because if there's one thing that seems to have happened ad nauseum over the years in the world of the paranormal, it's that all the adults would stand around, watch teenager in a bed and wait for weird shit to happen. And then weird shit inevitably happens, which tends to be a rap or a thump or a bump or in some cases shit going on fire. And then, of course, if it is paranormal in nature or even if it isn't paranormal in nature, why did it suddenly stop? Why did it peter out after 18 months and then just stop? And we don't hear anything else from this family again. They don't seem to have been kind of backwards about coming forward in terms of sharing their story. They seem to have spoken to reporters, let people in, etc, etc. And it also seems like they lost a considerable amount of money during this process in repairs, etc. So they didn't actually gain anything monetarily from it. So why then did it just stop? Because that's what I want to know. Or maybe they just stopped sharing what happened. That is also a very distinct possibility. I would absolutely love to know your thoughts on this story. If you are a Patreon subscriber, I do apologise for the kind of brief overlap with this one. But I just got so fascinated by this that I wanted to do a full episode on it. And I hope there was more information in this episode that you didn't get in the last episode because then I got the chance to get my hands on that book and so on and so forth. Thank you so much, as always, for listening to today's episode. Thank you so much for listening over the years. It is obviously always a, an absolute mind fuck for me to think that people listen to this podcast and continue to listen and enjoy it and new people are still discovering it all the time. And I just, I appreciate it massively from the bottom of my heart. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to send in your own story, you can do so by emailing it to reallifeghoststoriespodcast at gmail.com. You can also check out the website reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. And if you are desperate for extra content, you can sign up to patreon.com forward slash stories, where for $5 a month or $2 a month, you get access to heaps of extra episodes, as well as every single main and mini episode completely ad free. And on that note, I shall see you next time.